0: They dragged us out and put us on our knees in a line. At this point, I knew what was going on, and I just so I just kind of went into a very kind of quiet place.
1: What was that place? What's going through your head?
0: Well, I knew I was going to die. For well, that was a certainty. It wasn't a question of talking your way out. It was all over. It was just waiting for the bullet.
1: From Aura Studios, this is the Line of Fire with me, Ramita Navai. I've been working in conflict zones around the world for nearly two decades. And in this series, I talk to fellow journalists about covering war and the life-changing moments of confronting death. Welcome to The Line of Fire. My guest today is one of Britain's most experienced and prolific war reporters. Sam Kiley, CNN's senior international correspondent, has covered nearly every single conflict in the world since 1991. It's easier to name the wars he hasn't covered than the ones he has. He's also the only journalist who's completed a full combat tour with NATO in Afghanistan, spending six months in Helmand in 2008. Sam, hello. Hiya. Um. We've known each other for quite a long time, haven't we? The beginning of my career, the very start of my television career, I think we met on the international current affairs series Unreported World in, was it 2006,
0: 2007? No idea.
1: Well, what I do know is by then you'd been working about 55 years. (laughs) (laughs) How did you end up being a foreign correspondent?
0: Um. Well, I ended up in journalism. I was lucky because I I joined the Times directly from university as a graduate trainee alongside one Alexander Boris de Johnson, who was fired for lying, which was handy for me because it meant that I was able to stay on and uh, continue my career. Um, And I did a couple of years on the Times and then I became a foreign correspondent for the Sunday Times in L.A., which was a bit of a round peg, square hole situation. I survived a year there, and then luckily for me, the Times hired me back to become the Africa correspondent based out of Nairobi, and that's really when things really kicked off.
1: And did you want to become a foreign correspondent, or did you end up being one?
0: My dad was a journalist. He was an exile from South Africa. He was a foreign correspondent. When he went into exile, he was a stringer for a lot of American networks uh, in what was then the Congo, then became Zaire, and is now the Congo again. Oddly enough, I ended up covering rather similar stories as he did 30 years prior. So I suppose it was always in the blood. I mean, I, Africa is very much part... I was born in Africa. My father's born in Africa. In fact, my daughter's born in Africa. met my wife in Africa. My mother grew up in Africa. My grandfather on my mother's side was a very important um, scientist in Africa. So... I suppose the natural f- trajectory for me as a journalist would, was to want to go to Africa, and that's what I did.
1: Did you want to cover war?
0: When I was young, I wanted to cover... Yeah, I mean, as you know, I wanted to have a look into the abyss and um, see what was there, you know, grab the tiger by the tail type thing. You grow out of that pretty rapidly. I mean, on the first... Conflict I covered, a colleague was killed, another one lost his arm. Um, You know, it it goes from being, or should, unless you're a fool, go from being an abstract kind of fantasy into, this is a really cold, cold reality. And it's not about you, and it is about people, real people, really dying. It's not a spectator sport.
1: Was war as you imagined?
0: Um... I honestly can't remember how I imagined war to be. That was m- more than thirty years ago. Um, I mean, there are certain things that, are, from that period ever since, I can't eat or be anywhere near roasting pork because it smells the same as as burnt human. Um, so that has that has stuck with me. I can't really remember what what uh, life, before, how I imagined war before. But it's but it's it's a really 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 ugly disgusting viciously you know these are truisms but I think people because we live in a in an age or have always lived in an age in which war and warriors are celebrated what never gets sufficient focus or understanding in 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 most uh fiction representations of war is just how gory and grim and humiliating it is the other oh the other thing that I noticed and that that time, with the, with the, I mean, these are really disgusting, gory things. But the, when people die, they often kick a shoe off, and that really has always stuck with me.
1: Mm. How did you learn to cover war?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, uh, by accident uh, in Somalia during the campaigns there after the American-led invasion there to put an end to the the starvation racket that caused a famine there.
1: The American-led invasion that Sam's talking about started with an aid mission in 1992. George H. W. Bush sent American forces into Somalia to stop the famine, and the mission was a success. But nation-building proved to be a lot harder. Less than a year later, elite American troops launched a raid in the Somali capital Mogadishu to arrest top lieutenants of a powerful warlord and restore a government. But it was a disaster. Two US Black Hawk helicopters were shot down, hundreds of Somalis were killed, as well as 18 Americans and two UN soldiers. Within six months, the US had pulled out of Somalia. The Battle of Mogadishu had been America's deadliest firefight since Vietnam, and was later given the Hollywood treatment by director Ridley Scott in the film Black Hawk Down.
0: I think I'd been standing on a roof amid the clattering. This, this, uh, bullets when they pass close to your ears within about three foot of your ear make a sound a bit like a football rattle a sort of clattering noise it's a very it doesn't sound like a bullet does in the, in the movies further away they make a kind of whizzing noise and it makes it that's easier and I'd been standing on this roof every day watching battles drinking tea smoking cigarettes scratching my bum taking notes And uh, a veteran of the French Foreign Legion came up and spent about four seconds on the roof with me and then dived down the stairs and actually bashed his head on the wall trying to get off the roof. And I thought he'd rather overreacted and wandered down. I said, what's the matter with you? And he said, those are incoming rounds within three foot of your head. And I'd been wandering around like some impervious god, completely ignorant of the fact that people were trying to shoot me. Um, So, you know, that's quite an interesting lesson to have learned and survived it. I mean, it's not all about crawling around in foxholes while the bullets whiz over your head. I mean, covering a war is much, much more important to understand why it's happening, how it's happening, how it's being funded, whom it's affecting, and whose to whose benefit is this? What is the causes? But what are the causes behind it? Those are the questions that really interest me, and very often the kind of frontliney stuff is is just sort of um, window dressing.
1: Yeah, and I, I, in these years that I've known you. I've never heard you describe yourself as a war correspondent, a war journalist.
0: Yeah, it makes my flesh creep. I hate that term. Yeah, so do I. Why? Um, It always reminds me of a kind of caricature of a French photographer, you know, with his neckerchief, leaning into a young woman at a bar and saying, you don't know what I've seen. (laughs) Um, I think it's sort of, I I mean, you know, I never intended to specialise in conflicts. I don't see myself as a specialist in in or on conflicts. I happen Mm. to have covered a lot of conflicts. Um, I think there's a lot more to my work than walking around with my mouth hanging open, taking notes or being shot at on camera. I think that that's sort of frippery in many ways. But um, I just think it's a bit wanky, war correspondent. I mean, it's sort of,
1: it's
0: something out of Tintin. And anybody who does sit around telling war stories is a complete fool and a burke
1: mm.
0: i mean the you know the only good stories to tell from these places are ones that against yourself and then in, mostly involve you know being sitting on a loo and having to crawl for your life mm. or um you know they're the funny stories they yeah. you know those are the only ones one would hear any of us tell i would hope i mean they're not you know that that kind of um you know, pull up a sandbag and let's swing the lantern, and I'll I'll tell you a few tales. It's odd actually, because I, I I recently told quite a long and involved story to my son, who's adult, um, and it was a descriptive story. I mean, it was, certainly wasn't a kind of you don't know what I've seen type story, but it it was a it was just a long story that started in Rwanda and um and ended in Bosnia. And he you know he was goggle eyed, and because mm. I don't talk about it, you don't people don't. Mm. Know what kind of what you've been up to. What I mean, it's quite kind of in 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 a way it, to those who are very who are close to you. It's a bit insulting that you don't talk. One doesn't talk about it. But I mean, the only reason I'm here is because you're my friend. Anybody else? I, I, I mean, I don't like talking about this stuff.
1: No, I, I know you don't, and um, you're extremely modest actually about what you've achieved and the work you've done. And I know that you don't like talking about the things that have happened to you. And I do appreciate you being here. Um, what's the conflict that's most affected you?
0: Uh, Rwanda, Rwandan genocide. I mean, it, it, and, and and for anybody who covered covered it, that should be the right answer.
1: The Rwandan genocide happened between April and July 1994, when Hutus, who formed the majority in Rwanda, murdered a million Tutsis and Hutu moderates. The ethnic rivalry has its roots in an artificial friction between the two communities. Dating back to the German colonial period of the early 20th century. The genocide started after the shooting down of a plane that was carrying the then presidents of Rwanda and neighbouring Burundi, both Hutus, which was blamed on Tutsi rebels. That incident signalled the beginning of the pre planned, systematic mass murder of Tutsis by Hutu extremists, who harnessed the state structures to orchestrate the killings. School teachers, mayors, Doctors, nurses, they were all instructed to kill.
0: Yeah, and you've seen me react. I get very, very irritated when people don't seem to know what happened in Rwanda. People Mm. know about the Holocaust as they jolly well should do. Mm. Well, this was the kill rate of human beings in the Rwandan genocide was as high as the height of the atrocious Nazi murder of of Jews and others during the Holocaust. There's 37,500 a day, crudely put. And they're by hand, with machetes, with the roots of trees. Um, the Kagera River, l- l- the, the, the Rosumo Falls on the Kagera River looked like somebody was emptying a pot of Tuscan bean soup with the bodies. I mean, it was there were more bodies, there was more than a body per second going over the falls. And that was weeks, after the, the the genocide had supposedly ended, there was a million people killed in 90 days. Um, yeah, it was the single biggest horror story since the Second World War. I mean, there's just, you know, there were other similar numbers were killed by Pol Pot, but over three years, mm. not three months. Mm. There were very, very few journalists actually covering it on the ground and to start using the term genocide genocide is a term that applied there that we were reluctant to use now people chuck it around with like confetti it makes me sick um, so same with the word famine you know they, 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 these are real things that shouldn't be used lightly you know otherwise you 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 you're simply not doing justice to the to the scale of the horror i mean there were i remember there was a little girl of about 9 whose the top of her head had been sliced off like an egg and she had a plastic bag covering the hole which, through which you could see her brain, just walking around. Um, you know, there were kids with, you know, machete wounds, you know, as long as your arm across their backs. There were women who'd been raped and men who'd been, you know... I mean, they were in a real mess. And there were lots and lots and lots of dead bodies lying around because it was happening every day. There were fresh bodies, old bodies, I mean, decayed bodies... <laughs> Yeah, so that that was that was 94, yeah.
1: Psychologically, mentally, how did you get through that day by day?
0: Easy, it's not my problem. I mean, it, it, it's not my problem to fall apart. This is not boo-hoo. You know, if you, I was pretty experienced by then. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you don't get damaged and scarred by what we do, then you're a psychopath. But I'm not interested uh, and rarely reflect upon at least at that stage, you know, you know, what does it do to you? I'm just not mm. interested.
1: Did covering that genocide, the Rwandan genocide, did it leave a particular mark?
0: Uh, well, I used to have jolly weird dreams. I mean, it was two years after that I had my first child. So, I mean, I used to have dreams about being chased through the banana groves with my daughter Ella under an arm and, and, I, and I always had a gun with a bent barrel because I couldn't defend myself. You know, there's, there's those sorts of things...
1: Four years later, you survived being shot at at a checkpoint in Lesotho.
0: No, I didn't survive being shot at, I survived being shot. <laughs> oh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, I mean, shot no, at okay. a lot. Yes, this one good hit. point, yeah. When Sam got shot, he'd been reporting from the small kingdom of Lesotho. It's a mountainous landlocked country in the middle of South Africa. President Mandela had deployed South African troops to put down a military coup, and the attempted seizure... Of a strategically important dam by the local military. What happened?
0: Oh, uh, well, I pushed my luck too far. I uh, misjudged a roadblock and um, got shot in the arm. And then, luckily, uh, didn't. I mean, I was still kept my wits about me, so I was able to spin the car around and and escape. Um, so, luck, and it didn't. You know, I mean, it, uh, another. Millimetre closer in, it would take my arm off. So I, I still had a functioning arm, so I could go, get got away.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, Sam, we could talk for hours. Oh, about, let's not about, <laughs> about about you surviving uh, these bad situations. And you've been in many bad situations, but I want to ask you about that one moment, doing your job when you faced death, and it was in Iraq, two thousand and three. You'd been covering the invasion. Talk me through the start of your day.
0: Um, yeah, very bad day at work that was. So myself, Nick Hughes and our two Kurdish friends, we were in Baghdad. The Americans were still consolidating their conquest very early days. I can't remember the exact date, but they'd, they'd kind of taken over a, a, a week or 10 days prior. So we'd come in from the north, which in itself was quite a hairy journey, all the way down through to crit, Saddam Hussein's hometown. We were making a documentary for Channel Four's dispatches. And then and then we had to get out. You know, we'd been there for week months by then. And so we drove out. We missed our convoy to drive out with... Uh, out to Jordan. It's about a 15-hour drive to the border. And our car was a rather battered Jeep Cherokee the exhaust had fallen off. It was black, had yellow TV signs on it, which was probably a mistake in hindsight. And we went puttering off with me at the wheel down the road to Amman. And somewhere between Fallujah and Ramadi in the sort of badlands, and they were the badlands even under Saddam Hussein. It was all very, you know, thieves, and scoundrels being around there. But this was before the insurgency had even been thought of, really, um, and we were puttering along. And how, then... how
1: come you were driving?
0: Oh, because I always insist on driving, um, because because I've survived so much whilst I've been at the wheel. I pretty don't want to put my survival in somebody else. I know, I I know I won't lose my marbles if things go weird. I mean, we also probably took it in turns, but anyway, I was driving out because I knew the way. Luckily, our two Kurdish friends had been educated in Baghdad. So they had, in Arabic, they had Baghdadi accents. Um, Otherwise, they would have been in real trouble. Mind you, we were all in deep doo-doo in the end. But so we were driving along and very busy highway. It's about four lanes wide in both directions. It's a proper, proper highway and very busy with trucks and cars going in both directions. And um, I noticed this purple sedan following us. And so I sort of slowed down and it sort of slowed down. I sped up and it sped up. So I thought, oh, here we go. This is going to be tricky. And sure enough, they kind of pulled alongside and then they drove in front and then they kind of tried to stop us by kind of pulling across the freeway. And I spun the car into a U-turn and drove it straight back into the oncoming traffic. So I was playing dodgems with the oncoming trucks and cars, hoping basically to create a, a car crash for the people who were then chasing us. Um, and this went on for about 20 or 30 kilometres. It was a proper dodgeham trail until they managed to get up alongside and poke their guns out and pull us over to the side of the road.
1: What were you thinking in those 20, 30 minutes? That's a long time.
0: Well, I was trying to, th- I was trying to get them killed by a great big truck. That's what I was, all I was that thinking It was survival. About. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, these guys were trying to get us, and I was trying to get away. And I didn't—we didn't have any. Turns out, actually, the, one of the guys with us had actually hidden an AK under the floor. I'd forbidden guns in the vehicle, and he had actually hidden it. Uh, murder, you know. I mean, you know, with hindsight, would have I liked to have had a rocket-propelled grenade or a, or a large aircraft carrier at my disposal? Yes, but at the time, I was just trying to get them hit by a truck so that they wouldn't kill us. And that didn't work. So they pulled us over and, well, they came storming up to me. One of them head-butted me. Um, they pulled their... Wait, you know,
1: wait, wait. So so t- t- talk me through this. They, they, well, they, they, they pulled, pulled, us pulled over. They pulled us, They over. You, the... you. you, they made you get out of the car? What happened? Yeah, yeah.
0: They, well, they, they, they came running up to the car and pulled us out of the car and one of them head-butted me and... How
1: did they manage to pull you over? They just...
0: They stuck their guns out and pointed them at my face and waved to the side of the road, made it kind of pretty clear. Um, I thought they were going to kill us there, but they they didn't. They they'd, And then one of them spotted, I'd, I'd had some, I had 20 grand in cash hidden down the back of my trousers in a money belt and it must have been poking out. And one of them spotted it and grabbed it immediately. Uh, not that I kind of cared or noticed. And then they put us, they separated us, the two Kurds in one car and me and Nick in another and took us off into the desert. Uh, Nick Hughes, who was with me in the car, was the producer, director, cameraman on the, on the dispatches shoot. So very, very experienced and tough as nails. And Nick was going, what's happening? What's happening? What do you think's happening? And Nick is a martial arts expert. And one of them kept slashing. Every time Nick said anything, he slashed at me or Nick with a, with a bayonet, trying to shut us up. And Nick could have jumped them, but that would have meant that the two Kurds would have been killed in the other car. Um. So we kind of didn't jump them.
1: Did you discuss that?
0: No, we couldn't, but we could kind of do it with eye contact. Nick yeah. and I are old friends from Kenya, so we don't, you know, a lot of non-verbal communication, is pretty old, you know, mm. but both of us knew what we were capable of. Had we been alone, we would have just attacked them. Um, but we couldn't, so we were driven off and behind a kind of big soil berm, they call them, you know, these military piles of dirt that people hide tanks behind or whatever. And they drove behind me. I thought they were taking us to a village, and then they drove off into the desert, and I thought this is bad i thought it was fine if we get kidnapped you know we you know we can we've got a bit of longevity but um being driven behind a big pile of dirt means only one thing and sure enough they they dragged us out and put us on our knees in a line and they, they kept hitting me especially i'd really annoyed i'd obviously frightened them with my my dodge driving and um they put us on our knees. My right to left, me, Nick, and then the two our two Iraqi friends. And then, um, you know, at this at this point, I knew what was going on, and I just so I just kind of went into a very kind of quiet place.
1: What was what what was that place? What's going through your head?
0: Well, I knew I was going to die. For well, that was a certainty. It wasn't a question of talking your way out. It was all over. It was just waiting for the bullet, uh, and I knew I'd be first. And I just went into i gay i kind of let go completely let go um what do you mean I stopped fighting i was reconcil- i wasn't wasn't reconciled with it. I focused on you know i just thought about my family and my kids and um yeah, just uh kneeling in the dirt um kind of like a like a creature waiting for the bolt in an abattoir and um and nick looked across and saw the guy's finger closing on the trigger that mm. was on the on the 9mm pistol that was in the back of my head mm. i mean i wasn't guessing at what was going on it was happening um so I, you know, I expected it all to go black any second. And Nick saw the guy pulling the trigger. So he stood up and ran, which meant that they shot at him. And they, they didn't shoot me in the back of the head because they now had a runner. And they shot at Nick. And I saw the bullet strikes going between his legs. One of them went through his shirt but didn't hit his... Body and he got about 20 yards, and then everybody started shouting, Nick, Nick, as though what he'd done was really unreasonable. And he turned around, put his hands up, and smiled. And our abductors were completely freaked out, and they'd made a lot of noise. They'd fired the AK on automatic at him, and then they'd all shot at him, you know. So, at how least... could
1: they have missed?
0: Oh, because they did not know what they're doing with their guns, luckily. Um, unnamed shots, you know. People watch too many movies, luckily for Nick and us. Because if they killed him, then they would have killed us, obviously. Continued to kill us.
1: And why did he turn around?
0: He, can't, he has no explanation. He doesn't know.
1: I mean, that's extraordinary.
0: Why, did we, why we're all going, Nick, Nick, you know. I don't know. But first, It was the curtsy first I chatted. I don't know what... I don't know. I've no idea what happened. After the incident, he described himself as my stool pigeon because it was him fluttering away that kind of saved us. Um, but he didn't expect to survive either. He just didn't want to die on his feet. He was adamant about that. Mm. Um, but what it, whatever it did, it created some kind of... Uh, they, this is hindsight. So, uh, so mm. what happened at the time was they then were... These guys were very shaken. These were obviously, you know, baddies, but pretty amateur baddies, but murderous ones because they were going to murder us. And... And so they turn around, they start screaming, and, they, and the, we were getting translation from our Kurdish friends, and they were going, where's the money? Where's the money? And I said, you've already got it. And they said, what do you mean? And they said, how much is it? And I said, $20,000, which is a shitload of money. By any, I mean, it, it, by anybody's standards at any time in their life, but in, in Iraq in 2003... Enough to buy a you know, medium sized county.
1: And where are you at this point? You Somewhere
0: s- in the desert near from no, no, the are body.
1: No, actually, physically, you still kneeling down. Yeah, like,
0: yeah, I'm still kneeling in the dirt. So
1: you didn't get up, you didn't start running. You... No,
0: no, no. I mean, I just, you know, I was kind of I was watching with a kind of distracted, you know, oh, well, you know, we'll do some shouting, then they'll shoot us. Um, so I said, there's t- 20 grand. And that kind of stunned them. And they were going, where, where, where is it? Where is it? And I said, that guy's already got it. I pointed at the guy who'd taken it. And they didn't know that he had it. So that turned their energies onto him. And then they just, and they basically then turned on us and said, get lost. Get lost. Go, go, go. But they grabbed me and they put me in the back of the car and they said, you can't drive. They were very pissed off at my driving. And so one of the Kurds drove and we got back into our thunder wagon. And they, they I mean, they nicked our mobile phones. Um I mean, not you know, satellite phone. bit, uh, but they kind of panicked. They went into kind of panic mode and told us to get lost. And and ah, uh, we drove about a kilometer and a half, and then we ran into an American Special Forces patrol. And that may, they may have known that the Americans were in the area and that they'd made a load of noise and that they'd blown their chances. Maybe I don't know. We don't really know why. So that's we survived. We still do I'm no, you know, that's the only any,
1: possible explanation.
0: Yeah. or or they would, just, yeah. But I mean, they or they kind of, I don't know. But they were gonna they definitely were going to kill us and then they didn't um and then we didn't have any money so then we 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 hobbled all the way to the border and then um i borrowed 50 bucks off michael holmes from cnn dear colleague who was on his way out or on his way in at the time he kindly bought me a visa into jordan and then nick and i went and spent 1700 quid on tequila at the intercontinental in amman
1: it's Ramita Navai here and thank you for listening to my show I hope you agree that these stories are not only powerful but important as I speak to some incredible journalists from around the world about what they've learned from working in dangerous places and how it's changed their perspective it would be great to get your help in sharing their personal stories so please do spread the word and subscribe, rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts from I hope you continue to be inspired by the series and I look forward to you joining me for more episodes. And you... And what was going through your mind in that moment where you thought you were going to die and then you realised you're not going to be killed, you're not going to be executed?
0: Well, that was a kind of permanent condition. So the... The the mo- the moment of realization that this is it you know that i'm going to get a bullet in the head is, is is not that i might but that i was definitely i was going to die it wasn't a supposition it was a certainty so then to be undead was very very confusing and left me feeling terrible for many years because um because i had let go you know people fight for their lives you know, a drowning person will fight every second of the way to get to the surface or whatever, but there was nothing that could be done. You know, like like somebody who's tied to... Like the Brothers Karamazov, you know. I mean, you know, you get tied to a pole, blindfolded, take aim, and then they don't, you know... And the last sound you're going to hear is fire, and then you don't hear it. Um...
1: No ecstasy, no jubilation in that.
0: No, 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 just... just but
1: how? I mean, look, I've got a... You, you, there's this kind of... You've written about this once. And I yeah. know you, you, you never talk about this.
0: Well, I wrote about it, so I wouldn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rita.
1: <laughs> and you said... Yeah, I'm going to quote. It's a rather beautiful, but, yeah, just mysterious quote for me. Cheating death is fun, but once you've accepted its cold embrace being cheated of it, leaves you feeling a little flat. And I guess that's what you're explaining to me now. But I, I still, I find it hard to comprehend that it can leave you feeling flat when you've got a wife and children and a life ahead of you. I can't imagine feeling anything but ecstatic.
0: No, I I don't know maybe it's I, guilt is not the right word at all it just wh- I mean it, it just makes you feel you're left feeling fucking awful um not jubilant at all mm. um r- rotten kind of and then long longer term and this is a condition of of what people call PTSD or whatever it it's like having no skin and you become so for about five years, I mean, you know, I was an appalling person to be around. Even more monomaniacal. I had a catchphrase: "You're not listening to me. You're not listening." Being seen, being heard, being being told that you had a right to exist at all was 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 like it was like it was like it was like being in a state of permanent scream for five years and having no skin. So incredibly oversensitive, bereft of any kind of existential. Belief.
1: How did you get over it? How did you acknowledge you had PTSD? How did it affect your relationship with your wife and your children? Well, I mean,
0: very. I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm you know, I'm a bit of a shit anyway. So, I mean, it, it's, yes.
1: it's,
0: <laughs> it's quite hard to t- tell the difference. But the the yeah, yeah, I mean, it's sort of the kids were not allowed to boo me from behind doors. I mean, that was always the case anyway. A lot of this stuff is sort of cumulative, but it, you know, I would be kind of, kind of comically stiff-legged, like a kind of five-year-old in a tantrum over some perceived slight or infringement.
1: Uh, and you said that you're over it. <laughs> <laughs> well, hang on a minute.
0: <laughs> um, but what it, what, what this injury does to people is it strips them of their belief in their right to exist, and so rebuilding that belief is pretty straightforward and should be understood by anybody who works with people who are exposed to this kind of thing not least civilians for for to whom this kind of thing was happening all the time i also was not that interested in you know i was supposed to be messed up you know everybody in iraq was going through this kind of experience every single day i was not that interested in fact i wasn't the least bit interested i just wanted to get through the day get onto the next job keep paying the bills keep educating my kids you know, very tolerant family, put up with it. And then in in the end, in fact, I recovered entirely from the effects of that by going to Hellman and getting shot to ribbons uh, for six months in Hellman doing my book. But by then I was doing exactly what I wanted to do with the people I wanted to do it with, being treated with the utmost respect. And even though it was highly um, violent, I haven't looked back.
1: Explain this to me. Why on earth would you need to go... I didn't to need war. to
0: it just happened I, I mean I didn't I, I wanted to Well you to,
1: made it happen
0: Yeah but I went I went. well I went to do the book because I wanted at that stage in my career to I, I'm completely hooked the The drug for me is to be where history's happening and to really know what I'm talking about um, and I Is that the it.
1: addiction? You're not addicted to the adrenaline?
0: No God no no I'm sickened by it I'm, I'm completely disinterested and and when it does kick off people are very freaked out by me because I appear to be completely indifferent completely cold-blooded not interested not excited because I know that you've got to keep your wits about you in order to kind of you know panic is panic will get you killed anyway but no I'm not remotely interested in in that aspect of the job what I really really do love is is knowing what I'm talking about from the ground up and 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 above all you can't go and illustrate what's going on you know we've been talking about me which is what a sort of nauseating subject we, the, the reason I'm there is and, and this it does sound pompous but it is it is true it is to report on the lives of other people and how they're being affected mm. I mean you know for any number of reasons lately not least because I don't want this shit happening to my kids in my country you know I'm really 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 good at spotting the ingredients of a coming conflict like really good um, and I, I can see them potentially. I mean, I'm not bonkers. I don't. I'm not. I don't see a civil war emerging in the United Kingdom anytime soon. But climate change may mean that, will mean for certain that my grandchildren and probably my children will spend a significant part of their lives in some kind of conflict.
1: And how did covering another war help you heal?
0: It wasn't covering the war that helped me heal. It was being around people who were very, very respectful of what I was doing. We're pretty amazed as to why on earth I was doing it. I was not embedded. I was a completely free agent, given completely free access across the whole area of operations for Helmand. I was the only person who could get on a helicopter, including the brigadier, without signing a manifest. I could just hop on any vehicle I wanted to. I was given access to secret information. My self-belief returned, you know. Mm. I, I was. It was extremely dramatic period in which my countrymen were killing and being killed uh some of them people i knew very well and some of them in you know in combat environments that i shared with them but we were i was just doing what i wanted to do and i'd kind of i got control of my life back i got my own you know got got my mojo back you know and when i got back i haven't looked back i barely you know i don't you know i'm, I'm just the shit i've always been rather than the twisted one that I became for a period.
1: How did the experience of your near execution in Iraq change your perspective on life?
0: Uh, I didn't really. It was just a really terrible thing. It it wasn't a kind of recovery from cancer story that made me want to live every day like it was my last or something like that. I don't know. Maybe I became a bit more of a hedonist. It'd be difficult to have increased that. Um, I mean, I've been pretty good at living life to the full anyway. Um,
1: what did you learn from it? Nothing. I knew you were going to say that. Nothing. But no. I, I find that hard to believe. Well, I mean, it's, yeah. I no. mean, but but most of our colleagues, who have been through terrible situations, even if it's affected them really badly, will say that they learnt something about themselves, about how they deal with trauma. Or there must be something.
0: <sighs> I don't think so. I mean, I I don't know. <laughs> Learning more about yourself. I can't remember i mean i don't do, I don't do, think do so. you know
1: why I think you 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 you're absolutely resolutely saying you didn't learn anything about yourself because even though there's lots of bluster with you, actually you don't have an ego, and I think it's your kind of innate modesty without blowing smoke up your ass because I hate to do that, but I think that's what it is i think you i think you think that it would be um it would be God, what's the word called? Uh, Self-indulgence. Exactly, exactly. Which is what I thought about therapy when I started therapy. I didn't do it because I thought it just felt too self-indulgent. I can see that in you. Well,
0: that's very kind of you. I mean, I'm not sure many of my colleagues would agree that I don't have an ego. but the. Well,
1: no, that's what I was saying. There's that bluster and there's what you project. But actually, deep down, I think, yeah, you don't. And you feel it's very self-indulgent. And that's why you shy away from these questions and... You you, could, you must have learned something about yourself. You just weren't allowed. Why? Yourself. Why?
0: Why does everything have to be? You know, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it, I don't. You know, I mean, it doesn't there, have to there, be in that cringy. It's a sort of trope of American literature. To, you know, it wasn't until I was confronted by by my own mortality that I realized how beautiful a buttercup could be, or the joys of a fresh rain on my face, or. I was pretty good at enjoying that stuff anyway.
1: Do you think culturally there's a difference between the way we process really traumatic experiences in Britain? And
0: No, I think the whole idea of the stiff upper lip. I mean, look at the way the Brits behave when they go on holiday. We're not a nation of stiff upper lip. We're a nation of people puking in the streets and <laughs> screeching like stuck pigs.
1: That's why I love us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, we're appalling. Uh, no, there's no, there's no, there's no. You know that that that's a sort of Hollywood myth. The Americans are much more buttoned down, and and they're brave as lions too. Um, so, but they're
1: much more open about exploring.
0: Well, in the literature, they are. I mean, this is why you're asking me. You know, what is the, the what is the, this? Is the whole point about yeah? You're the the, the, Id and the ego or the yin and the yang or whatever the. Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, You're you are not know, taking
1: this seriously, Sam. No, I'm, no, no. But I mean,
0: I, 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 just, I think it's absolutely fair enough. And say, look, it was a really terrible thing. Yeah. It Left me quite damaged, mm. and I got over it. And also, you know, I mean, it's kind of inherent in the in the issue about this whole podcast is we're not the point. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't expect to, to escape from. My job, unscathed, I yeah. expect to be scathed badly. Mm. I hope to be able to recover and look after my family and be kind to the people that I love and to be, broadly speaking, more or less semi-decent human being, you know, fighting against my own worst instincts. But the reality is that sometimes these things are just mm. just bad days.
1: And nothing you think nothing good came of that.
0: No, there no, definitely nothing good came of it. Absolutely nothing good came of it. No. It was bloody awful and I wish it had never happened.
1: Mm. Horrible. I mean you you've been so lucky and so many of our colleagues haven't been. Um you in particular, you've lost lots of friends and colleagues along the way. Um including, and forgive me for mentioning this because I, I know you don't like to talk about it, but including your cameraman, Mick Dean. Uh, I was
0: his correspondent.
1: Who was killed by a sniper in Egypt in 2013. Sam, how how, how does one live with that? How do you live with that?
0: Um, that is a day by day. Mm. not my story no it's mixed story
1: yeah i'm
0: so uh
1: i mean i sam it's just it's painful looking at you now cuz yeah these are scars yeah these are scars and i i i'm i'm sorry for making you go through all of this but you keep on doing it <clears throat> we keep on doing it
0: well we've got no transferable skills <laughs> <sighs> um. No, we're we're. I mean, you know, it's because it's worth it. Because it is, we've got to believe that it's worth it. And every now and again, we make a difference. Quite frequently, we don't. Uh, and I've contributed to the whole genre of uh, historically of, of of war as entertainment, wittingly or unwittingly. I'm allergic to it um i think i I hope i 've always been but i 've definitely been part of the problem but the you know it 's not often one can point to points in one 's career when it made a difference, but cumulatively we hopefully make a difference mm. um sometimes it 's quite hard to believe that we do and, and it is the it's the it, you know i 've been doing this so long now I hope i 've got something to contribute analytically an awful lot of my work. It may be set in places, I might be standing on the front line in Mosul, but I'll be hopefully making sense of it for the for the viewer, not, not kind of whiz-bang, look at me, I'm wearing a flak jacket sort of nonsense.
1: How has covering conflicts changed from when you started to now? Do you say it's safer?
0: Uh, no, I don't think it's safer. I mean... Uh, y- you know, well, the, the. I mean, this goes to a completely different subject altogether. But war isn't a sport, you know. I mean, you've heard me rant about this in the past. It's a good thing that there are international rules and regulations about how people conduct themselves at war. But these are war. You know, war is about saying to your enemy, if you don't do what I tell you to do, I'm going to smash your baby's head against a brick wall. None of it is some kind of activity that that can really be policed. It is the end of reason. It is. It is. By definition, you know, I mean, all of these are truisms, but there's still a sort of sense that, you know, has war got safer? It's a perfectly rational question until you say it out loud. It's like, well, how do you have a safe war? You know, mm. war involves dropping bombs on people. There's nothing mm. safe about that. Um, no, I don't. I don't think it's got safer. I mean, the, 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 there's more concern about our safety. Mm. Um so that doesn't necessarily even translate into actual safety. I mean, it's yeah. a very complicated debate.
1: Um, if there's one piece of wisdom you've learned from doing this job and facing death and danger, what is it?
0: Um, I can only think of facetious things to say. <laughs> Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. I mean...
1: Well, that's, I, that's not facetious. <laughs> I,
0: don't, I don't think that there's any particular wisdom that one accrues as a result of of these sorts of things. Mm. I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, I sound very kind of. I just don't give this stuff much thought. Um, I don't kind of, you know, make church steeples out of my fingers on the, on the plane home and 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 say to myself, what lessons can I take away from this? I mean, I I will be analytically picking over similarities between the. Uh, criminal structures that underpin the Assad regime and those that underpinned Mohammed Farah Aidid and the Bosnian Serb mafia or whatever it might be those are those are the interesting those are the things that I look at and 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 study and and, and they keep me awake at night literally thinking about you know that the, these are the these are important stuff hmm. uh, I, I'm really not that interested in you know I think
1: me. I think eat drink and be merry are wise words and actually when dad was was dying and dad's last days that's what he said to me they were his only wise words that he wanted to impart to me eat drink and be wary
0: well he was a wiser and much better looking man than me so <laughs> I would listen to him
1: <laughs> <laughs> sam thank you so much thank you i really you. appreciate you sharing these stories with us because I know how difficult and painful it is for you.
0: Thank you, Ramita. I've hated every minute
1: of it. Oh, give me your hand. Mm. Thank you, dying. To learn more about Sam's work, I recommend starting with his book, Desperate Glory. It's a beautifully written, gripping and remarkable account of the reality of the Afghan war. We've attached a link in the show notes. You can also catch Sam on CNN and follow him on Twitter. His handle is at KylieCNN. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Line of Fire. If you'd like to follow me, my Twitter handle is at Ramita Navai. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and subscribe. And tell your friends they can find us wherever they get their podcasts. Until next time. The Line of Fire is a podcast from Aura Studios. It was presented by me, Ramita Navai, and edited and produced by Chris Scott. Our executive producers are Matt Raz and Richard Osman.